Well, good morning. Welcome to Randall. We're glad you're here. If you get your Bibles out, we'll make our way to Malachi today. We're starting a new series. Last week, we'll continue it today. A number of years ago, uh, Morgan Spurlock, as his name, created a film documentary called Supersize Me. Anyone familiar with this? Kind of rocked my world. I don't know if it did for you. Uh, what he did is basically he, he decided to do an experiment in regards to fast food. He had three rules for the experiment. He was going to do it for one month. Uh, during this month, he could only eat what was available at the counter of McDonald's. That was the only thing he was going to eat for one month straight. If the cashier offered it, if she said, would you like to supersize this? He would say, yes, I will supersize. So he didn't have to supersize it, but if she asked him, if they asked him to do it, he would supersize his meal. And then he would have to eat every meal at McDonald's, three meals a day for 30 days. How many of you want to sign up for this experiment? So this is the experiment he did. It's a documentary. It won a number of film awards if you haven't seen it. Uh, Spurlock gained nine pounds in the first week. That, yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> Exciting. Good crowd interaction there. That was very nice. Yes. After two weeks, he gained 18 pounds. At the end of the 30 days, he had gained somewhere between 27 and 30 pounds. And this is what happened in one month's time. His blood pressure rose to an unhealthy level. He battled indigestion, nausea, and depression. After three weeks, his doctor was worried about his liver. His cholesterol and other blood levels were so far out of control that the medical team looking after him was concerned about a variety of health issues and almost asked him to stop the experiment. They did suggest it. Uh, the food satisfied for a while, and his blood sugar would then crash. And the more that he ate, the more hungry he got, and the more he wanted to eat. And then he would be depressed because of how much he had eaten. And it just this cycle for 30 days and went through it. It took him almost two years to lose the weight, if you're keeping track. This movie scared me straight. Anyone else? If you've seen the movie, if you haven't, maybe me just talking about it this morning is enough <laughs> to scare you straight. Um, Today we'll be talking about serving God the leftovers. Fast food is quite literally serving people the leftovers. Dr. McCall is a New York Times best-selling author who in full disclosure, if he was here today, he would love to sell you all of his books, his homeopathic remedies and all that. Uh, we're not getting into that, but here's some things that I found from his website in regards to uh, the actual makeup of some of our fast food. So here we go. We've learned that McDonald's hamburgers contain so many chemicals and so few real food, real food ingredients that a burger will, <laughs> I'm trying to get this out, fails to show signs of decomposition for more than a decade. It takes, yeah, awesome. Uh, the McRib, which comes around once a year and you get excited about it, we watch the commercials for it. There's more than 70 ingredients that make up the McRib. And yes, one of those ingredients is pork. <laughs> but when you give it a closer look and you find the McRib has uh, azodecarbonide, which is used to bleach the flour in bread, well, that's not so bad. But it has many other uses. It could also be used for the composition of your yoga mat, your gym shoes, or anything that's generally rubbery. That's yeah, in your McRib. And, so, and then burgers are stuck together with leftover meat with something called a transglutinamase, or some people call this meat glue. It salvages and serves previously unused meat product. So 
if you want to be as grossed out as I was, do some research after you leave here today to just really, what, what are we talking about? Uh, well, first of all, where are you going to go to lunch today? Yeah, five guys, yeah. We're in week number two of a series in the book of Malachi called What God Sees. What God Sees. So if you have a Bible, will you turn over? I pray that you got a copy of God's Word. Turn over to Malachi. If you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, the black ones in front of you, it's a page 1,000. So it's easy to find, page 1,000. Uh, if you're not, a book of Malachi is not something you've been to recently, find the book of Matthew and then take a left. It's the one right next to Matthew, in the last book of the Old Testament. We talked about last week the people of God, that Malachi is speaking to the people of God. And we talked about being a weak link in the chain of faith and that really these Israelites that he's speaking to are multiple generations of weak links in that chain of faith. And today God's people are going to get caught in serving their leftovers. They're going to get busted and God's going to call them out on it. He's going to be very specific on it, that they've been serving leftovers to God. So this is not going to be a warm and fuzzy sermon. This is not the text that you will use uh, the next time you hear me uh, preach at a wedding sermon. This is not the text that we're going to use. So I'm trying to start this morning, to be totally honest, with a little bit of humor because we're, it's going to be pretty heavy. I want you to know that going into it. Uh, this, this would not be a wedding sermon. This would be more like a, a drill sergeant sermon, uh, the way that this is approached, the way that Malachi addresses it. And there's something for many of you, as you've gone through, as we preach through books of the Bible, as we make, there's a certain thing that we see in Scripture of tone and just dealing with tone. And the tone here is heavy. And so for me, as I'm trying to communicate that this morning, I, I do need to take some seriousness with the text and have that same type of heavy tone uh, in bringing it to you here today. Because a drill instructor, a drill sergeant, uh, those of you who served in the military, you didn't show up at boot camp and it didn't go like this, where you get off the bus, you make your way there, and the drill instructor comes up to you and he puts his arm around you and he says, man, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I heard that you have some father issues and so I just want to talk to you about that before we get started. Uh, tell me about your background. Is there anything I could be praying for you for as we get started here today? And then we're going to, you know, get... I mean, the Army does do it that way, but the rest of the services... <laughs> if you're going <laughs> to walk through the Bible, if you're going to really look at what God is trying to communicate, there's going to be a lot of variance, and there's going to be some passages that are heavy. And so when we come at it this morning, we need to, to have that understanding that we're going to take a bit of a beating here. Uh, today. But hear me on this. It's in love. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, which we read last week, God says, I have loved you. And that flag just is waved throughout this book. He says, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I care for you. I'm doing this because I have a better plan for you than what you are seeing here today. And so today as we look at this, no one likes to hear what some of these things are. And, and as Malachi, again, the verse 1 of the whole book, he talks about the burden that he carries. And I'm feeling a small, uh, I think a small understanding of that this week and just preparing us of carrying the burden this week. Because no one likes to hear that what they are doing is worthless or what that they are doing <coughs> will be rejected by God. And today Malachi describes worship and he describes leadership which is worthless and is giving God the leftovers and is rejected by God. 
And so as we come into this this morning, stay with me, track with me. We will make our way through. But understand that we should leave today with some conviction that God is working on your heart and working on mine. So the first question we're going to ask, and if you are using your bulletins inside your bulletins, you have that white sheet of paper to get you there. The question is, are you serving worthless worship? Are you serving God worthless worship? The last thing I want us to do is to gather here on a Sunday morning and worship God in a manner that is not pleasing to him. That's, that's not what we want to do. Why would we do that? If that's, why would we gather ourselves together and not do all that we can to worship him in a way that is pleasing to God? And I'm sure that you feel the same. Over the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a term that is actually, I was taught this in college when I went through college, and there's this, this word, this really kind of juxtaposition called worship wars that have gone on in our churches in America. This debate, this struggle back and forth about worship styles and, and really <coughs> churches have spent so much time talking about worship styles and very little time talking about worship attitudes. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Malachi is not going to say a single thing today about worship styles, but he is going to deal and say a whole lot about worship attitudes. Are you serving God worthless worship? So if you want to mark these in, these are some sub points if you want to help carry us through this. I am beginning in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, verse 6. Worship is worthless when it is less than our best. Worship is worthless when it is less than our best. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord God Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. God wants our first and our best. And yet often our first and our best is tied up with other things. Our first and best time priorities are tied up with other things. Our first and best use of our talents that God has given us are tied up with other things. And of course, the, our first use of our finances or our treasure are tied up in other things. And part of the reason that we see in Malachi here, and part of the reason that what existed as a offering sacrifice system was he demanded this in the Old Testament from his people to demonstrate a couple of things. First, that they could take the very best from their flock, the best animal in their flock. They could take the very best from their harvest, and they could put it on the altar. And they would place it on the altar, and literally before their eyes, it would burn and consume and disappear in front of them. And in doing that, by placing that on the altar before the Lord, he said, it is now gone, it is no longer in your possession, and I will still take care of you. I will still take care of you. I will provide enough for you to live on. This, uh, this animal that is maybe the, the sire of your flock, uh, you no longer have it, and I will still bless your flock, and I will still take care of you. I will still make sure that all of your needs are met. 
and give, to take and give 10% of, of what you bring in, your gross every month, every week, and put it before the church and hand it to God and say, this is yours, that may seem in many ways foolish, just as it may seem foolish to these people, the, the Israelites, to put their offering on the altar and just watch it disappear before the Lord. And so some of you, you may feel that it is foolish unless you understand and trust that God is going to provide for you with the rest of it in ways that your earthly employer could never do. I'm not asking you to give in a way so that I will continue to get a paycheck or that we can make improvements around here so that we can have better programming or better activities. I want you to hear that this morning. Although those things are true. Like you, it is part of an organization and there are things that we can do if you give. But that's not really what this is about. It's about trusting in God. I'm asking you to give in this way or to, to find ways to give because this is what God teaches here and this is what he is asking for. To be entirely authentic and genuine with you. In the time that I've been a part of Randall and we've looked at our finances and we've done the very best that we can to be good stewards with what we have, over the last couple of years our attendance at the lowest point our attendance was set at a point where we were looking from our congregation that the budget was set to see about $15,000 a week was supposed to come in to be able to pay the bills for the church. And as good stewards, we looked at it and said, you know, look, this is, this is not realistic. It is not realistic for 150, 180, 200 people to try to carry that much of a budget. Uh, even though we're doing some great things, that is not realistic and we need to make some adjustments. And so last year we went with a with a knife and scalpel and just really went after the budget, said, this is not going to work. And so we set a budget around $9,000 a week is what our congregation needs to be able to meet our budget, meet our bills, and those type of things. And I'll tell you, that process is not easy. It's difficult. And so our church has grown. We don't have 150 people here this morning. We have more than that. We're starting to push towards that 300 mark, which is fantastic. And we're excited about the growth that we see. And so as your pastor, as I'm leading this church, I've successfully grown the church to give even less. <laughs> and we're averaging somewhere between six dollars and $7,000 a week. And for me, that's difficult. I have to be totally honest with you, that's difficult because why do we see growth in one area and we see new people coming in and we see people excited about what's going on and we're really excited about what God is doing and yet it seems like there's still this other piece and ironically, the fact that things will have fallen off even though things are growing. And from a personal level, I can get stuck there. And, and, and then you look at the budget and you go, okay, well then, well maybe we need to start cutting some things. Because as a church, we also tithe. As a church, we also give to other organizations and other missionaries. Like Jesse is one of them that is here this morning. We, we do that. Actually, 30% of our budget is going out of this building. And just like you and your personal finances, for me at this church and as we lead the, at the team of elders, as we lead, the easiest thing is to look at that, what seems like a big pot of money and say, you know what, maybe we should just start pulling out of that our first and our best because then we could do some other things that we want to do. And it gets inverted and you start to really get confused as to what is of value so for you on a personal level, and I have to say for me on a personal level, leaving this, leading this church, I want you to hear this statement. If you can't trust God with your money, are you really going to trust him with your eternity? God wants our first and our best. 
This church is 190 years old. We are pushing towards 200 years old, and I'm excited to be able to be there when that happens. If I am foolish enough to think that anything that I do in the next week or month or this year is going to be what really is the, the long-standing legacy of this church, that is foolishness. You understand that? The only reason that this church exists here at this location, at this place today, is because God has allowed that to happen. Because God has ordained that to happen. And some of you have been here for 189 of the 90, 190 years. <laughs> and we're glad that you're here. But God has sustained this church for years upon years upon years. And he will continue to do that in the future if he so chooses. All that we are told to do is to bring our best before him. Worship is worthless when it is less than our best. Secondly, worship is worthless when it makes God ordinary. Worship is worthless when it makes God ordinary. Verse 9, now plead with God to be gracious with us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept you, says the Lord God Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and burnt offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. When we make God ordinary, we make him worthless. When we treat this worship gathering is just another activity during the week. Here, God says, I will just close the doors. Don't, don't waste your effort. Don't waste your breath. It's taking, something, it's taking something holy and making it common. We do this when we just add church or add our time of devotion with God to just our daily to-do list or our weekly activities. If I have time... If something doesn't come up, or if there's not some better form of entertainment, I should make it to church this week. I ought to read my Bible. I'll get to spend some time in prayer. Worship is worthless when it makes God ordinary. Worship is worthless when it becomes burdensome. Verse 12. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, and diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who is an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." God is not ordinary. His name is to be feared among the nations. And when our worship becomes burdensome, as it says here, when we say, does it really matter? Or as they're saying, does it really matter if I bring a damaged lamb, a stolen animal, or a lame animal, or a sick animal, if I bring that as my offering, does it really matter? Does it really matter if I'm here and I'm going through the motions? Doesn't that count for something? And God says, no. He says, shall I accept that from your hand? But this is such a burden. It's a nuisance. There's so many other things I would rather be doing. There's so many other ways I'd rather be using my talents. Do I really have to jump through all these hoops for God? 
And all of these attitudes toward worship feed off of one another. I hope you understand that. They just kind of mix together. When you don't worship in a way that honors God, we don't feel the need to give him our first and our best, which leads to all of this feeling like a burden or an annoyance. Because it all starts to feed off of each other and we start to lose the grasp, lose the understanding. He says, my name will be known among the nations. Later today, later this week, go through the book of Malachi. Circle, underline, mark how many times you see his name, my name referenced. My name will, my name has. Are you serving God Worthless worship. Now Malachi takes a turn here. There's a chapter change and different things there. He takes a turn. He wants to talk now to the leadership. If you're at a restaurant or if you're somewhere and you say, I'd like to speak to the manager or who's in charge here. That's basically what Malachi is doing. Because everything rises and falls on leadership. Leaders, it begins and it ends with us. Everything rises or falls with us. Everything begins with the quality of the leader. The health of a family is really contingent on the parents and how they lead that home. The well-being of a company is contingent on how that CEO leads that company forward. Ultimately for us at church, everything is going to rise and fall to our legacy in regards to our legacy as leaders. If you're new here and you don't know how we are structured in those type of things. We, we structure ourselves with elders. We have five elders. And from there, well, elders, if you're here, will you raise your hand this morning? So we've got elders in the room this morning. And then from there, we've structured ourselves into what we call care corridors, geographically based throughout the region. Each of those elders is responsible for an area. And so in that, we have about four deacons or deaconesses in each of those Area. So if you are a deacon or deaconess, would you raise your hand as well? Okay, so you can see the hands going up around the room. So what you have here is a church of, of leadership. That is your primary leadership here. That's the more formal version of leadership as a church. There's about 30 leaders in a church, and three of them happen to be paid. There's leadership then in more of an informal nature, leadership that we see with community groups, leadership that we see with Sunday electives, leadership that we see in our King's Kids programming, leadership that we see with our Christian Service Brigade programming, leadership that we see with our Moms and More programming. There's all these other levels and forms of leadership. There's all kinds of things that are happening into the church. This is so important that we, we never forget, particularly those of us that are in some form of leadership, for those who are aspiring to leadership, that people become like their leaders. People will become like their leaders. So the second question I want to ask you this morning, are you serving God lousy leadership? Are you serving God lousy leadership? And as a leader, this is haunting for me. I'm, I'm praying that I will grow. I'm working through this process. And you can be praying for that as me as fast as I can grow and as quickly as I can mature in this process by God's grace. Pray for me in this. But all of us who are leaders, we need to know the decisions that we make and the way that we lead influences the people around us. Not just the ones who are following us, because there's going to be others in, that, in your radius as well who are affected by your leadership. Leadership is lousy when you don't listen to him. 
Leadership is lousy when you don't listen to him. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you do not resolve to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue with the Lord Almighty. That's pretty rough. That's pretty rough. I read through it quickly, but I don't know if you caught it in there. God says that he's going to smear the dung on our faces. Okay. I'm not, a, I'm not terribly experienced with dung smeared on the face. But I do have four kids, and I do know how to change diapers. And there's this whole process of parenting that, that really is all about just living through a season where everything stinks all the time. And if you've gone through that process, you know exactly what I mean. And there's children's workers right now that are dealing with your stinky, rotten kids. And, and it's just a season that you go through. And, and I've changed some bad diapers. I mean, there are some, some diapers that are, I mean, they're nasty. And, there's, and then there's a time frame where there's some smearing that goes on during the... the uh, Potty training time. It's just some smearing. I'll just leave it at that. At least in our house. But every once in a while, you've got a diaper that is just vile. And you, you go to change that diaper, and you can hardly walk into the room, and you don't know what you're up against, and you're, you know, you're calling for backup because you don't have enough hands to deal with the process. When you change a diaper like that, Usually, nine times out of ten, at least in our house, maybe you're better than we are, but at least in our house, when you change a diaper like that and the clothes are all saturated and it is a nasty, nasty mess, you don't put those clothes in the washer afterwards. You just throw them away. We can get new clothes. <laughs> the emotional draw on our family of what it would take to wash those clothes and put ourselves through that, we can just buy another onesie. I mean... In many ways, God is saying that. He says, leaders, when you don't listen to me, when you don't listen to my voice, just throw it away. What a waste. Leadership is lousy when you don't listen to him. Leadership is lousy when you don't live the truth. Verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and in uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. And people seek instruction from his mouth. Can people say this about you? That true instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. If you can't trust a leader, if you can't trust what they say, how can you follow them? And here there's describing a leader where what is coming out of the mouth is trustworthy. What is on their lips is trustworthy. Are you a leader who is living a lie right now? 
Have you done something or said something that's not entirely true? It's not entirely upright. And I'll tell you, from personal experience, as painful as it can be at the time, as you walk through that, as a leader, coming clean, the scripture in the New Testament, John chapter 8 says, and the truth will set you free. There's so much in that. Because living that lie is undermining you and your leadership at every level. That sin is holding you back from what God has actually called you to. I've seen it in my own life. And coming clean is a sense of freedom, of knowing that your leadership will be lousy as long as you don't live the truth. Leadership is lousy when you abandon the way, verse 8. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So these priests, these leaders, instead of walking with God in peace and uprightness, have turned aside in many ways. We've just come from the book of Hebrews, and he says, don't turn away, don't fall away. Why? Because in doing so, they have caused many to fall, it says here, many to stumble by their instruction. When a spiritual leader falls at any level, it doesn't matter if it's a community group leader, it doesn't matter whether it is a megachurch pastor, it doesn't matter if it's a one-on-one relationship where there's a discipling that is going on. When that spiritual leader falls, there is a wake of destruction that comes behind it. And we've all heard or read or experienced the stories. Some of you have probably seen it played out in front of you. When a pastor or a spiritual leader goes aside and falls away from where he should be. And the next thing you know, you have a very scandalous situation on your hands. And this is not just detrimental to that leader or to that pastor. It costs the whole congregation. It costs the whole kingdom of God. That ripple effect may take years and years to repair. A lot of what I've learned along the years is along the lines of church planting. And I'll tell you, as I've worked personally on some of these projects or worked alongside of others, there are many times where a church in the community has lost its standing in the community and has to close its doors. And as a church planter, many times you come in and sometimes you can inherit that building or sometimes you're just coming into an area where a church has done so much damage, a leader has done so much damage in that area, it can take years before people are willing to listen to you because you have to rebuild that trust. When leadership is lousy, when you have abandoned the way. So are you serving God lousy leadership? Are you serving God worthless worship? And then what would be the remedy for that? Your next fill-in is what is the remedy for leftover living? Leftover living, when you're serving God the leftovers, when in all of its nastiness and all of its meat product and everything else that we talk about, and you're serving all of that, what is the remedy for that? Are you tired of serving that up to God? Are you tired here this morning of being reprimanded or as you go through Malachi feeling like you are getting a drill instructor in the face? Let us remember that apart from Christ, we are all like priests who are at odds 
with God. Apart from Christ, our worship is useless. Apart from Christ, anything we bring to God, anything that we offer to God is not accepted, but it is worthless. And apart from taking this message of Christ, the heart of all it is, and we are just like priests, we are under the curse. If we do that, the only remedy that we have is Jesus Christ and the cross. So take your Bibles, if you will, and turn over just a few pages, just a few pages to Matthew chapter 4. And as you make your way there, you will see yourself, you are crossing over in many ways this great divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That chasm is 400 years. So when we see this uh, curse that we are saying that God is going to put a curse on his people, he's going to say, I am not going to use you, I'm not going to interact with you, I'm not going to utilize your empty worship practices, he follows that up with a 400-year gap. And what were they doing during the 400-year gap? They were continuing these practices. They were continuing wasting their time, wasting their efforts, and then we get to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The remedy for leftover living is to look towards the light. Verse 13, we find Jesus beginning his ministry. Verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah. In your Bible, this is often a tabbed over because it is an exact quote out of the book of Isaiah that says this, In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee, to the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And Isaiah is one of the first waves of prophets that's being quoted here. Malachi, that we are just reading from right now during this series, he's the closer. He's, he's the anchor leg. He's the one who's going to, to kind of put the seal on what all the prophets are saying. But they're all pointing to the same thing. They're pointing to the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is the 400-year fulfillment of prophecy. Look to the light. Second remedy for leftover living, turn from the darkness. Verse 16, the second half, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so you've got this darkness that they've been in. for They're in like a dark cave for 400 years. And it says, turn and look towards the light. They see a light like the sun coming up in the morning. And Jesus, picking up on his cousin John the Baptist, who had one word that he said over and over and over. He said, repent, 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 repent. And we see that all the way through Matthew. At the beginning of each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all talk about how John the Baptist started his ministry by saying, repent, repent. And what's the first thing that Jesus turns and begins his ministry? What do we see Matthew document? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This word repent is if I was walking down this aisle towards the back of the room. Repent is a 180 degree turn and turning and walking towards the light. Darkness is all around you. And Jesus says, repent, turn, walk towards the light. The kingdom of heaven is near. The last remedy for leftover living is to immediately follow Jesus. 
As the band comes up, I want to illustrate this in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 19, he says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you out, I will send you out to fish for people, or I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, at once, immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. What's the remedy for leftover living? Immediately follow Jesus. At once. When I was a kid, there was this game called Simon Says. Now, some of you are young and you've never played this game because there's not an app for this on your phone. It's a game called Simon Says. It works like this, right? You remember, if you're nice, we'll play this morning. So, Simon Says, pat your head. So everyone pats their head, right? Simon Says, rub your chin. And so everyone rub, now see, most of you would be out. Most of you would be out because you rub your chin. I said, Simon Says. Ah, you see what I did there, yes. But you see, Jesus says here, come follow me. So when Simon says, do something, we do it. And Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will make you. And you know what we try to do in the church? We try to change the rules. We just memorize it. We don't actually do it. We just memorize it. So when we see Jesus and we see, he says, go and make disciples, we memorize it. We say, go and make disciples. I've got... Daughter who's 11, a daughter who's 9. So if I, if I say to her, say to them, go clean your room. And a half hour later, they come back and they say, Dad, I, I memorized what you said. You were standing right there, and you told me and my sister, you, you told us, go clean your room. That's what you said, right? And you know what, Dad? I spent some time, I've been working on it. I can say, go clean your room in Greek. <laughs> go out and make disciples is what Jesus says. He says, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately followed. Do you see what God sees? That's the title of our series as we're looking at this. When he looks at his people, as the prophet Malachi looks at the worship practices of the Israelites, do you know what he sees? He sees leftovers. And God is saying, I am God. I can literally take the breath out of your lungs. Stop throwing your leftovers at me. Drop everything. Turn and follow me. Be my disciples. I will make you fishers of men, and I will send you out into all the world preaching and teaching the gospel.